sermon text this morning is Psalm 81. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 81. Hear God's word. Shout aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Raise a song. Sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre with the harp. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon, on our feast day. For it is a statute for Israel, a rule of the God of Jacob. He made it a decree in Joseph when he went out over the land of Egypt. I hear a language I had not known. I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. In distress you called and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me. There shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward him, and their fate would last forever. But he would feed you with the finest of the wheat, and with honey from the rock I would satisfy you. What we find in this psalm are a people who have taken the name of God to themselves. They are those who would claim to be believers, God's covenant people. And the psalm begins with these people being called to the worship of God. Verse 1, sing aloud to God our strength, shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Verse 2, raise a song, sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre with the harp. And then verse 3 speaks of the blowing of the trumpet on one of their religious feast days. Dalich, a well-known commentator, he suggests, quote, that the summons in verse 1 is to the whole congregation. The summons in verse 2 is to the Levites, who were the appointed temple singers and musicians. The summons in verse 3 is to the priests, who had the specific task of blowing the trumpets. Verse 3 refers to these trumpets being blown at the full moon on their feast day. And uh, verses 4 and 5 tell us that this feast was instituted by God and celebrated their deliverance from Egypt. And there's actually a number of references in this psalm to the Exodus. Verse 6 refers to their deliverance from the slave work of carrying bricks as they would carry them in these baskets. In verse 10, God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So we naturally wonder what feast is being celebrated, what feast is in view here in the psalm, and several are possible, certainly in connection with the blowing of trumpets at the new moon. Perhaps it's the feast of Passover. It could be the Jewish New Year. It could be the feast of tabernacles. But I believe that the references in this psalm, speaking of deliverance from Egypt, indicate that The psalmist is thinking about the feast of Passover. Uh, This is the feast that celebrated when the angel of death passed over the houses of God's people who had in obedience sprinkled blood on their lentils and doorposts. And the result was that their firstborn sons were spared from death. 
Of course, it was in connection with the plague of the death of the firstborn that Pharaoh finally let the people of God go. And so the psalm begins with the whole nation being summoned to worship God as the God of Passover, the God who delivered them from slavery under the Egyptians. And as we begin this psalm on this note of praise and and worship, we naturally think that all must be well with God's people. And yet from verse 5 on, essentially this psalm is a plea from God for his people to listen to him. The bulk of the psalm ends up being a passionate plea from God for Israel to repent and to submit to his leadership over them. If we step back and think about this situation in a very general way, what this means is that Israel, thinking about them as a whole, as a nation, certainly not true of every single person, individual person, but as a nation, God's people are involved in hypocritical worship. This means that the people of God who are being summoned to the worship of Jehovah, their covenant God, are going through the motions. Um, Situation is even worse than that. Verse 9 is a warning against the worship of false gods. And if you can recall Israel's history, it happened again and again. It was an ongoing problem that Israel would try to worship false gods along with Jehovah. So they would insist that they were Jehovah's people and they would want Jehovah's blessings while at the same time offering sacrifices to idols on their high places. And so this, in the end, the psalm is dealing with hypocritical worship, people who are claiming to be God's people, claiming to love God, even singing songs of praise, attending religious ceremonies of, of feast days, and yet their hearts are far from the Lord. We'll get into, in a moment, what that looks like. Um, This psalm comes as a warning to the church today, to you and me, that the Lord is not interested in religious ceremonies, per se. He's interested in hearts. He's interested in people's hearts that are devoted to him. The application for today would be that the Lord's not interested in our attending church and in our church and religious activities if our hearts are not right with him. The Lord wants us to be active in the church, certainly, but always as people who love him and who are responding to his grace with thanksgiving. Just doing things externally doesn't impress the Lord. In fact, he tells us in his word that he despises such tokens of affection that are only external. For example, in Amos chapter 5, verses 21 through 23, the Lord said to his people who pretended to love him, he says, I hate I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. End quote. I'm reminded of the time in Israel's history when Saul was king and he was told by the Lord to utterly destroy the Amalekites and all of their livestock But Saul did not listen to God, and he spared the best of the livestock. His excuse was that these animals would be used to sacrifice to God. Remember Samuel's response? Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, 
and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. These words of exhortation and rebuke fit very well with this psalm before us here this morning. And what I mean is that this psalm is also a call to obedience. It's a call for God's people to respond to him with the, the love of obedience. We show our love to God by our submission to his will. You may think that God wants us to show our love by our worship, and that is certainly one way that we can, and we are called to show our love to him, but not if our worship doesn't flow from a heart intent on obeying God out of love. Our psalm describes this obedience. It describes this submission to God in terms of listening to God. And so this psalm comes as a, as a plea of God that we hear and that we listen to him. Verse 8, Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me. Verse 11 says, What has been the response to God's call? But my people did not listen to my voice. Verse 13 returns to this call to listen. Oh, that my people would listen to me that Israel would walk in my ways. And the psalm agrees with the testimony of the rest of Scripture and how it defines what it means to hear and to listen to God. As far as God is concerned, listening to him is the same thing as doing what he says. In other words, when God speaks, he expects us to jump. He expects us to heed what he says. But this is exactly what was not happening in Israel. God says there in verse 11, but my people did not listen to my voice. It's interesting in the, in the New King James, it says there, they did not heed my voice. So really, you see that much difference between listening and heeding, not as far as God is concerned. God was speaking, but his people were not doing what he told them. Verse 13 also tells us, that listening and obedience go hand in hand. In verse 13, we find this use of parallelism where the psalmist says essentially the same thing in different ways. And what we have in verse 13 is the idea of listening to God parallel to the idea of walking in God's ways. So walking in God's ways, listening to God, these things are directly related. Where you find the one, you find the other. Those who listen to God show they are listening by obeying him. And it works the same way with parents and children. There's a very practical application. If I, as a parent, am telling my children to do something and they don't do it, um, and maybe not at all, but even if they don't do it right away, it's possible they didn't hear me with their ears. Well, if they eventually do it, I guess they did hear me. But if they don't do what you tell, tell them, it's possible they didn't hear you. It's possible that my voice got drowned out by maybe music that's playing or maybe the vacuum cleaner was running or perhaps I wasn't speaking loud enough. But most of the time, they can hear our voices as parents. And when they don't obey, it's because they don't want to. Uh, most of the time, it's a matter of the will. And there's something to the idea of a child being trained to listen for a parent's voice. In the book, Shepherding a Child's Heart, the author Ted Tripp wrote about how one of his children seemed to have trouble with hearing. And he writes this, he says, we sat down this child and had this conversation. You are having trouble hearing. I am speaking to you in normal conversational tones. I am in close enough proximity for you to hear me. 
I think, therefore, that you better start to develop the ability to pick my voice out of the other noise in your world. When you hear my voice, you should perk up your ears. From now on, if you fail to obey because you did not hear, I will spank you for failing to listen to my voice. And Ted Tripp says that he had to give only one spanking for failure to hear, and after that, the hearing problem cleared up, end quote. So what does this have to do with our relationship with the Lord? Well, we don't always hear God, and the reasons for that are several. Sometimes it's because we're not close enough to hear, which what I'm talking about is how in our relationship with God, we're not reading his word. The ears of our hearts simply are not coming within hearing distance of God's voice. Now, we hear a lot of people this in our day and age talking about hearing God's voice. I'm not talking about an audible voice. I'm talking about God's voice speaking in his word. Unlike with human communication, to not even hear God at all is our fault. It's our fault. It's our choice if we don't read the word or attend the preaching of the word. These are ways that God speaks to us. There's also the possibility that maybe we're just not in tune with God's voice. It's, it's there, but we're just not allowing ourselves to hear God like we should. You read the scriptures, you hear sermons, but maybe you're not taking it all that seriously. You don't always approach God's word with a reverent attitude that it's the voice of God. You and I can be reading or listening to God and become so easily distracted. We hear the the whir of the ceiling fan. We think about what we're going to be doing this week. Meanwhile, we're we're not paying attention to the God of the universe who is speaking to us from his word. And part of the problem is that we're not naturally trained to perk up when God speaks. And still, I would bet that most of the time we can hear God and we do hear God, but we simply choose not to do what he says, which is, a matter of our wills. The problem is that we are rebellious. We don't really want to do what God says. And uh, throughout Scripture, we are admonished to go beyond just letting God's word fall on our ears or show themselves before our eyes as we read. No, we're to act. We are to respond by doing what God says. Jesus said in Luke eleven twenty eight, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. James chapter 1, verses 22 through 25, read earlier, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. It goes on to say, but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the word, this one will be blessed in what he does. So the Lord wants us to be people who when we hear God's word, we take it seriously. Your attitude toward his voice is a sign of your attitude toward God himself. Listening to God is evidence of proper submission to him. And submission to God is part of what it means to be a Christian because as a Christian, we receive Christ not only as Savior, but as Lord. Lord means master. To be a disciple of Jesus means that he is your master, which implies that you listen to Christ just as a slave will listen to his master. Listening to Christ means that in concrete terms that you confess to be sin what he says is sin. It means listening to his gospel and seeking from him rather than from your so-called good works, the righteousness that is needed to be right with God. 
In the end, listening to Christ means responding with obedience to whatever he says to do. Jesus says that if you love him, you will keep his commandments. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The one who does the will of his Father. It's probably obvious to you why God comes to his people and pleads for us to listen to him, but nevertheless, we come to the second point of this morning's sermon, which is where I want to explain why God pleads with us to listen And the first reason is obvious on the face of things, and yet must be stated that God pleased with his people. He pleased with us to listen to him because we're not listening, right? It's an ongoing problem because of our sin nature that we don't submit to God's word like we should. And if we consider the people of God at the time of our psalm, what is described in verses 8 through 10 is an idolatrous people. It says, Hear, O my people, while I admonish you, O Israel, if you would but listen to me, there shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. Israel's not listening to God. They are not obeying. They're not submitting to God. By worshiping other gods, they're doing the exact opposite of listening to God. Today, we also stop listening to God as we turn to false gods. Now, when you hear that, there would be plenty of people who would say that they disagree with that statement because in our culture, we don't typically have idols of silver and gold or wood. Um, We don't have shrines typically. We don't bow down to some figure, but that doesn't matter because ultimately idolatry is a matter of the heart. And idolatry is when something or someone takes the rightful place of God in our lives Anything that takes your attention off of God and of spiritual things is an idol. For many, a love of money and the pursuit of money, that takes the place of God and his worship. But whatever it may be that you allow to take the place of God's worship and the study of his word, that is an idol. Maybe it's work. Maybe it's sports. Maybe it's social media. Maybe it's entertainment school activities. It can even be human relationships, maybe uh, your pursuit of, of comfort and a life of ease. How easy it can be for us to do other things than those things that involve listening to God. The decision to not listen to God may be as simple and as rebellious as someone saying, well, I don't really feel like going to church tonight, so I'm going to stay home. I don't feel like going to Bible study I'm too tired, I'm too busy, I've got this to do instead. For us in our day and age, idols show themselves through our priorities. What is important to me? Will the things of God be given the, thing, the priority, uh, the place in my life that they deserve, or will other things choke them out? Do you find that there are things in your life more important than hearing God? If so you've identified an idol. And you understand, don't you, that idols are attractive. There's always this temptation to worship idols rather than God. A temptation always involves the devil coming to you and telling you that to go his way will be to your advantage. And at the same time, to go God's way is to your disadvantage. And so idols become a draw to us. And there's really a pull that we feel and that we need to recognize is there. 
And the temptation of idols eventually boils down to the question of who can provide for us? Who are you looking to? What are you looking to to provide for you? There's not one human being on this earth that doesn't want a good life. Universally, we want to be happy. We want to be satisfied. And the question that's always in the back of our minds is what is the best way to that contentment? And we give our energy, our attention, our love, and ultimately ourselves to whomever and whatever we think will make us happy. You can see from our psalm how this was working itself out in the nation of Israel. Our psalm refers to how Israel was in slavery in Egypt. And in verse 6, God says, I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. This is referring to their slave labor, making bricks. They would carry the mud for bricks and baskets suspended by a yoke across their necks. And just to mention this, I'm sure, brought back the horrible memories of that time. And this is what God wanted to do. He wanted to remind them of that horrible time of slavery because God delivered them from it. God reminds them in verse 7, In distress you called and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. A secret place of thunder is thought to be uh, the pillar of cloud and, and fire from which God defeated the Egyptians at the Red Sea. The main point is that God is reminding his people of how he provided deliverance for them from their enemies. The exodus from Egypt was a great and awesome event of redemption. And it was an event that should have led the people to trust in the Lord alone forever. Gone forever should have been any doubt that God is going to provide all that they need. But then we have the last part of verse 7 that brings us um, to, 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 to clearly see our sinful nature. For God says of Israel, I tested you at the waters of Meribah. And that word means, Meribah means contention. And contention is arguing, it is murmuring, it's complaining. This name was given to several of the places where God's people complained because God wasn't providing water like they expected. And so God says, I tested you at the waters of Meribah. And Spurgeon comments on these words. He says, quote, precious things are tested. Therefore, Israel's loyalty to her king was put to trial. And alas, it failed uh, lamentably. God, who was adored one day for his goodness, was reviled the next. And the people for a moment felt the pangs of hunger and thirst. The story of Israel is only our own history in another shape. God has heard us, delivered us, liberated us. And too often our unbelief makes the wretched return of mistrust, murmuring, and rebellion. Great is our sin. Great is the mercy of our God. Let us reflect upon both and pause a while. Selah. And that's what we have there, right? In, in our psalm, after the mention of the waters of Merba, we have a selah, which I believe, although it's not known absolutely what that word means in the Hebrew, but it seems that the basic idea is this is a time to pause, and to meditate, and to think about what's just been said. Hurried reading. Spurgeon goes on to say, is of little benefit to sit down a while and meditate is very profitable, end quote. And the issue for Israel for us always continues to be whether we're going to trust God to give us the good things that we need and want, which 
fits with why God tells Israel in verse 10, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. The Lord is saying to them, he's saying to us, I'm a good God who can provide all that you want and need. The Exodus proves it. Open your mouth wide and as God, I will fill it. Now, when I hear that expression, open your mouth wide, I think of baby birds. I think of when mom returns to the nest, those baby birds, they're, they're looking up to her with their mouths as big and as wide open as possible. They want every morsel that she has found. They are begging to be filled, and they're opening their mouths wide because they expect to be fed by mommy bird. And I'm convinced that a lot of people like Israel will not. They do not open their mouth wide to God because they don't believe God is able to provide for them. If you're opening your mouth wide to God, you're trusting him to provide your earthly needs and you're seeking the spiritual blessings that come to him through his word. And if you're like this, prayer will be a prominent part of your life because prayer is what you do when you know that God is the source of all that you need. Prayer is what you do when you know that you're dependent upon God and you're seeking all good things from him. And yet, if you're honest, you know that it's not natural for us to be people of prayer. It's natural for us to think that we can just take care of ourselves through our own strength, through our own efforts, through the, through the things of this earth. And if you find yourself spending your time and energy in the pursuit of something of this world that you think is going to make your life good, you can be sure that you've turned away from God. You're probably not thinking of it this way, but what you are doing is you're opening your mouth wide to some idol. And this is what is happening if you're looking to something of this world to bring contentment and satisfaction that only God can give. So what we need to have clearly before us and what we need to, have to get through our minds once and for all is that God deserves our undivided attention. God has done nothing that would prove himself to be unreliable or unfaithful or unloving or uncaring. In fact, it's just the opposite in this psalm here, God is pleading with his people to listen to him, to trust him, to submit to him, because why? He's been a good God who has our best interests in mind. In this psalm, God comes to us and says, essentially, look at what I've done for you. Look at how I've provided for you. And we can, can as New Testament believers, see even more clearly what God has done to take care of us as his people. The redemption from Egypt and bringing them into the life of, uh, of Cain, and that was only a foretaste of the redemption accomplished by Jesus Christ. God sent his very son to save us from the worst enemies of all spiritual enemies that would have destroyed us forever. So how can we think that God won't or can't provide everything that is good for us when he didn't even spare his own son from the cruel death of the cross for us? That death was all about his love and grace, doing what was necessary to free us from our sins. Our sins deserve condemnation, and yet Jesus took that condemnation upon himself. And so now by faith in him, we have eternal life. We have a future of hope. We know God as our heavenly father, a God who cares for us, who loves us. And the Passover pictured the reality of redemption from sin through the coming Messiah, who we know to be Jesus Christ. God has kept his covenant promises. The reality has been fulfilled. And so then we need to think about what is to be our response to him, the things that God has done for us. 
They demand a response of faith and trust and submission and love. What is your response to God? What is your response to this message this morning? What he is saying is that in the way of listening to him is great blessing. God tells Israel in verses 13 through 16, what would have happened had they looked to him rather than to idols? God assures them that he would have more than provided for them. He says, oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward him and their fate would last forever. Verses a little bit hard to understand. I believe the haters of the Lord are the Lord's enemies who have been defeated and forced into submission as enemies submitting unwillingly and only outwardly while in contrast to these defeated enemies God's people would have endured forever psalm continues but he would feed you with the finest of wheat and with honey from the rock I would satisfy you the land of Canaan was designed to be a picture of the spiritual blessings in Christ the defeat of their enemies, the bounty of the land, that was a picture of how God provides bountifully for us in Christ. Of course, then and now God provides, yes, the physical things of this earth that we need. But in the Old Testament, these earthly things pointed to greater spiritual blessings. What God is saying is that if we will but listen to him, he's ready to give us blessings in abundance. In fact, there's no other way to experience the blessings of God than by submission to him. And yet we so easily trade our birthright for a bowl of stew. We so easily doubt God's goodness. We believe the lie of the devil that hope and joy can be found apart from God. And then what happens, ironically, is that we actually deprive ourselves of what is good. There's a warning in verses 11 and 12 to those who reject God. For God says, but my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. So God is saying, if you don't want him, if you're not going to listen to him, submit to him, worship him truly from the heart, then you can have things your way. But you're not going to have God. And you're not going to have his blessings. It's then we come to those verses considered just a moment ago where God tells them what he would have done for them. He would have defeated their enemies. He, 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 he can supply great abundance of food. By choosing to reject God, the people of God chose to strip themselves of these good things. People of God, do not turn from the God who gave his son for you. Do not turn from the God who will bless all who listen to him. God pleads with sinners to listen because it's foolish to reject him. What more does God have to do to prove his love for you? It's sad and it's foolish to turn from the one who is the source of all good things. May we be a people who listen to our good and to God's glory. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we confess, sadly, that we do not always listen to you as we ought. We do not value your words recorded for us in the Bible as we ought. We, we do not always consider them as reverently as we ought, as being the very voice 
of you to us, speaking to us. Father, we pray that we would gain a greater and greater appreciation of your word and of the fact that you speak to us the words of life. And so, Father, we pray that we would listen. We pray that that listening would take the form of obedience to your word, that we would be people of submission, that you would then be pleased to bless us. We might experience the the blessings of fellowship with you in the covenant, in this way of, of listening and obedience. Father, we know that our hope of eternal life has nothing to do with our obedience, but we understand that discipleship, that living a life of the covenant is a, a life of, of listening to you. And so we pray, Father, that you would work that in us more and more, that uh, more and more we would repent of our lack of listening and, and lack of obedience, resting in Christ for the righteousness that we need and drawing from the fact uh, that you have sent your Son um, love for you, thanksgiving that, again, promotes even all the more our listening and obedience. So, Father, we pray that we would take these words to heart, we would, that we would take these, these words to heart as words that came to your church, your, your people in the Old Testament. So, Father, we can be those who go astray. We can be people who fall into this sin of not listening. And so, Father, um, spare us, we pray, from this sin. Keep us close to you. Give us a love for you and a love for your voice. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.